prayer be forced out. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and today I'm so excited to welcome Haley Stewart to Old Books with Grace. Um, Haley Stewart. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm like jumping in before you. <laughs> no, I'm so excited. Do you want to start over? <laughs> no. no, this is perfect because this conveys the level of excitement that I have and that I hope you have as well <laughs> for talking Jane Austen today, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, Haley is a beekeeper's wife, mother of four, um, Catholic speaker, author of um, a book called The The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. She blogs at Carrots for Michaelmas, and she co-hosts the Fountains of Carrots podcast. And I started following Haley on Instagram because I really liked the way that she um, blended her faith and her interest in literature and uh, alongside her regular day-to-day life as a mom, as a writer, um, as somebody interested in sharing ideas with the world. And then I really started to like and respect what she was doing when I read this wonderful article that you published in Plow on Madeline Lingle and the vocation of motherhood and writing Um, And so listeners do yourself a favor and go read that because it's really lovely. And um, the link will also be up on oldbookswithgrace.com for anybody who doesn't want to go through the pain of Google. Um, But she also has an exciting book coming out on Jane Austen soon. And hopefully we'll hear more about that in a minute. And so welcome, Haley. Super excited you're here. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. It's a treat to know that I'm going to get a break from whatever I was doing today and just get to chat Jane Austen for a while. Yay. It's the best. Um, So I have a few questions I like to ask um, folks who come on Old Books with Grace. And the first question, very important, is what or who is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? So I really struggled to narrow down anything below my top four or like narrow my top four down. But Jane Austen is one of my top four. (laughs) So I'm going to choose her today, even though she's in a tie with some others. Can you just, you don't have to go into it, but do you want to just list the others like top fours? Sure. Okay. The other ones are Evelyn Waugh, Sigrid Inset, and Flannery O'Connor. So those are my, those are my other ones. Excellent choices. You know, I am ashamed to say that I have not read as much Flannery O'Connor as I should. And I've been really reminded lately that I I need to read more Flannery O'Connor. So that's a good reminder. Um, Okay, question number two for you. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? Okay, so if I confess this, you and all your listeners are going to think I'm a horrible person, (laughs) but I'm going to do it. Okay, so I really relate to Emma Woodhouse because I'm terrible. (laughs) I know she gets awesome, but she is really bad. So like all of the things she does... I hate them, but I understand them. <laughs> like, so, I yeah, 
I feel that. And what makes Emma horrible is what makes me horrible as well. (laughs) So I relate to Emma, but then I feel so much hope because by the end of the novel, she's a lot better than she was. Okay, though, you know what I really like about Emma, though? And this is why I think this is a good answer and, like, in the long run, really great. Like, um, a good... uh, I guess, portent for your future is that Emma's a learner. That's what I like so much about her. She's a learner and she's, she has this wonderful learning experience that it just, I think that's a great character to be like. Yeah, she does. She gets better. She's able to hear people. Not at first. No. (laughs) First she's completely oblivious, but I think also a lot of her, growth is connected to the people around her yes being patient with her absolutely and then because of that she's able she trusts them Mm -hmm. Mr. Knightley in particular she trusts says his opinion um and so she's able to hear his rebuke and that's kind of the turning point for her she's able to see everything more clearly after that yes yeah I love that too I think stories that depict relational learning are some of my favorites. Um, Austin obviously is a master of that, but I've also always loved like Little Women by Louisa May Alcott and um, some of those other uh, like Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, just uh, Anne of Green Gables, these relational learning novels, I just think are so wonderful. Yes, I agree. And I'd never thought of, I've always thought of Austin that way, but I hadn't really thought of how important that is in Anna Green Gables. And that's so true. I mean, because Anne's learning all the time. Yes. She's always making mistakes in learning, but thinking about everything that Marilla learns from her relationship with Anne is, I think reading the books as an adult, especially after being a mom, I am so much more drawn to like the maternal characters, which Marilla is like not necessarily maternal, but she becomes maternal. Yes. Um, and all of that journey is now like, I, I like my, I have to like stop and collect myself when I'm reading it aloud to the kids because Marilla like has a touching thoughts that of course she never shares with anyone but you get to know it as the reader (laughs) and I'm like they're like are you okay mom and I'm like yes I'm just collecting myself because Marilla's feeling something right now (laughs) Marilla's feeling feelings and so am I we're all feeling feelings (laughs) um I know Marilla though is I mean to go off on an Anna Green Gables tangent Marilla is um I think a very touching character like she's she has this hardness and then she just is melting and you see that melting and there's something that is so sweet about that and so genuine to the process of motherhood um or at least Mm -hmm. I relate to that I'm not uh I wouldn't have called myself a very tender person I was much more of a um I I was much more of a, like, I hate the dichotomy between reason and emotion. I don't think it's really real, but that would have been the way that I tended more was I, I was more of like reason oriented and stuff. And I feel like motherhood has um, opened my heart up so much. And we do see that in Marilla totally. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah, that. Yeah, it gets you. Something about when she's tender, it hits you the same way as like when Professor McGonagall has like a little <laughs> Tinder slip up, you know, yes. and you're just like, oh man, it just gets me. It gets me. I wonder actually, that's funny because I've never thought about those characters in the same um, breath before, but they are very similar. Very similar. They are. They're like and dragon like their mother. hairstyle. Yes. They're <laughs> yeah. like a slicked back, like tight bun in the iron gray mm-hmm. hair. And um, <laughs> I wonder if J.K. Rowling had Marilla in mind when she was writing McGonagall. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe subconsciously. Maybe, maybe. That's, I like that. Um, Speaking of motherhood, one of the questions I had for you before we get into Jane Austen that I would love to hear your thoughts about, um, especially since this is a personal question for me as I'm figuring out my 
my whole life setup is um, ever since I read your article on Madeline Lingle and motherhood and writing, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about how your vocations of writing and motherhood intersect and how you see them working together, how you balance them. Um, they're not in competition with one another. They are truly two sides of the same coin in, in a sort of way that might not be the best mm -hmm. metaphor, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about that. Yeah. So, um, the piece I wrote for Plow was kind of jumping off of Madeline Lingle's, some, especially what she wrote in Walking on Water, which is her reflections on faith and art, but also from some of her Crosswicks journals, which if you've read her novels and you've never dived into the Crosswicks journals, they are so delightful. I mean, they're just wonderful. And so I, would, I had been reading a bunch of those. And one of the things she really emphasizes is the writer as a co-creator mm -hmm. and the mother as a co-creator. Mm -hmm. And so with both of these vocations, they're both based in this participation as it, participation in God's work of creation. You know, that yes. we're kind of Tolkien talks about this in some of his writings that you know we can be co-creators if we are creating art, for instance, or writing books. And motherhood is another, as you said, side to that coin of being in co-creation with God. And so obviously there's going to be some competing reality when you're sure. trying to write and you're <laughs> trying to parent because we only have 24 hours in the day and, oh, our children do require a lot of time and energy from us. Um, so obviously we can't live in, in a dream world where it's like, oh, I, my children never interfere with my writing life. You know, that's just not reality. But on the other hand, if we think about identity, you know, the person that we are and the person that we're becoming, the idea that um, our children, rather than holding us back from really discovering our ourselves as writers or as creators in any way um, that it just really doesn't make sense because being a mother is so much about being a creator yes and also so much about discovering who you are which I think is something that writing does as well it really forces you to reflect and think and wrestle with things and so I found for myself that I started writing when I became a mother. You know, I'd written stuff in college, but not, sure. I never felt like this is my vocation in any way at all. Yes. And then after becoming a mother, I felt like I had all of this creativity like pent up in my system. And I wanted to be able to communicate what this new experience was like of becoming a mother. And it just poured out into writing. That's like the, the venue that I found to start to wrestle with what I was experiencing and try to you know, imagine what this was going to be like. And so for me, my, my experience as a mother has very much, rather than squelched my creativity, has driven it. Yes. And I, I find myself... Um, always, you know, reflecting on what I'm learning as a mother and trying to put it into words and then also gaining so much energy from the creative spark of getting to write that I can then bring back into my parenting. I find that if I don't get to write, then I really struggle as a parent yes. to have the energy and, and feel like I have my head on straight to really be attentive to my children and really be a good mom. And so, um, yeah, I think they're very much two sides of the same coin and really connected. And I think it's so important to let ourselves be creators in, in, in both ways, you know, whatever ways we're being called to and not feel like um, one or the other is, is tearing us away from the thing yes. because the thing is participating with God. And, I love that. and so there's yeah. one big thing really. Yes. And I think that um, this is actually a pretty countercultural um, message 
because uh, I, I feel like at least um, I was in academia for a long time and uh, I was both implicitly and explicitly basically taught that these things took away from one another. They didn't add to one another. And, and as you said, it, in a, in a practical level, yes, there's only a certain amount of hours, hours a day. There's only a certain amount of time that your brain is fresh that you can focus on writing or that your heart is, um, ready to uh, be fully attentive to your children. Um, and, and that itself is a balancing act, but, um, to, fully claim that act of those acts of co-creation as um, working in tandem together to make you both a better writer and a better mother and that they don't detract from one another. I just think that's so important. And I think, um, and it's not like a silly Sheryl uh, Sandberg, like you can have it all lean in, you know, cause that's not the, the full truth either. And anybody, as we know, anybody who, um, is really just like pile it on top of my life. Like I'll just keep adding and keep leaning in. You will get burnt out, but that there's mm -hmm. this aspect of, um, when you're, when you're working to love God in the multiple vocations in your life and working to learn and and be transformed by love, it is this, uh, beautiful blended process. And so. Absolutely. And I that. think, I think really what, what I saw in Madeline Lingle's life and what I see in my own life as far as how she made that happen is that she wasn't doing it all. Yes. You know, she was yes. very much a team with her husband. Yes. And her getting to write was his priority mm. and him getting to act was her priority. And then their children were both of their priority. Yes. And so seeing like, if we don't have that kind of support, then pursuing these multiple locations, like it, it really falls apart. It's so hard. Um, and so I think that that to support women and support mothers specifically in being creators, we should expect for them to have the same kind of support that men have to be fathers and yes. creators as well. I mean, I think that's just very, very important. And that is countercultural as well. Definitely. But I hope is is shifting a little bit. I hope so too. And it's, yeah, I have hopes about that, but it is hard. And I think it's hard. Um, I think it, that's even hard sometimes in Christian circles, both Protestant and Catholic circles, that, that sometimes um, you can meet resistance in unexpected ways to, to the idea of um, women being as supported in, in these um, outside of the family endeavors, um, even though it actually isn't outside, it's all still contained within it, but it's, it doesn't look the same as it has in the past necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why I think, uh, honesty and, and examples like Madeline Lingle are so helpful as we begin to conceptualize something that looks a little different. Um, mm -hmm. and that's hard to do, but, uh, Speaking of the intersections of family and literature, one more question before Jane Austen I have for you is what books have you enjoyed reading with your kids lately and how do you incorporate older literature into daily life with them? Yeah, well, um, right now I'm actually reading, I was going to say a newish book, but that's just dates me because we're reading the Harry Potter series with my <laughs> yeah. kids. And I think of them as like, they just came out. I was just at the midnight book opening at Barnes totally. and Noble. Oh, those are the best. <laughs> Except you had to be careful but, because sometimes people would scream out the uh, spoilers, like oh, yeah, driving by. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh yeah. I remember those days. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm reading right now to them. Fun. Daniel's reading Lord of the Rings. Oh my gosh, dream. Which is, you know, so good, so good. But something that I have been reading to them lately, I guess we we read it and then they've been listening to the audiobook because they got really into it, is The Secret Garden oh. by Frances Hodgson Burnett. And I had just forgotten how good it is. Yes. It's so good. It's so beautiful. And the characters are just fantastic and funny and quirky. They're so weird. And the themes in it are just so beautiful. And so it's been fun seeing 
my girls especially fall in love with that one as much as I know I did as a little girl. And I've realized <laughs> as, as I reread it with them, I realized how influential it was on me as a child. Totally. I was like, oh my gosh, Dickon was my first crush. <laughs> he was so cool. And that's probably why I married someone who loves animal facts and is like, <laughs> hey, do you want to hear something about bats? And I was like, yes, marry me. Um, so I realized that. And then I realized that Dickens' mom's whole attitude about raising children. I'm like, oh, that's what I always wanted to be. I must have gotten all my parenting ideas from Mrs. Sowerby in The Gosh. Secret Garden because she's like, children just need to run about outside, have good, simple foods. And I'm like, that's my motto with children. <laughs> so it's funny rereading things that formed us as children and seeing we didn't even realize how influential they were. I love that. That's a great book. And I definitely um, need to revisit that. And I think my, my five-year-old would probably be really into that. I love that. I, I rarely think of audiobooks like for kids, except on um, like road trips. Mm -hmm. So that's a good reminder is uh, audiobooks as sort of a downtime alternative to um, PBS kids, which we probably watch a little bit too much. So. <laughs> we do too. We do too. But audiobooks are great. And we have it, our kids each share with another sibling. And the girls that are closest in age have the most trouble going to sleep at night because mm. they're bickering or talking mm -hmm. or wrestling sure. or giggling. And so putting an audiobook on for them to fall asleep to oh, has been great. very sanity saving. Yes, so file that away. That. Okay. <laughs> totally going to file that one away. That's awesome. Um, okay. So now on to um, the reason why we're both here, the amazing incomparable Jane Austen. And I would love to hear about your work on her and the book that is in process right now. And just tell us, tell us what you're working through with her right now. Yeah. So I finished edits on it and it's with the copy editor. So I'll get the publisher's final proofs in a few weeks, just a couple of weeks. But the book's working title is Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Called You to Be. So it's basically set up with Jane Austen kind of as our Virgil to Dante, you know, but we've got Jane Austen and she's our guide Excellent. and life coach. And so we walk with her through each of the six published novels and go examine one particular vice and its corresponding virtue mm -hmm. to develop. So following um, one character in particular from each book and seeing how Austin's moral philosophy really shows us how to live the good life and kind of shows how we develop virtue and what helps us find virtue and how cultivating virtue helps uncover the person we were always made to be, mm -hmm. makes us more ourselves rather than a cutout, you know, cardboard cutout person. It's yes. really bringing us to life. Oh, I love that. And I love how um, in your description of that, you bring out this idea that I think um, people often have a misconception about the virtues that they are meant to turn you into a cookie cutter, cardboard cutout person that um, they look the same. But in fact, the more that virtues are practiced in individual lives, the more um, kind of individuated a person becomes as well as a part of a community. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing that in action because I think that one of the best ways to really see and envision what virtue looks like is in a narrative and in the life mm -hmm. of a person in narrative. And so I think that's fabulous. Can you give yeah. us like a sneak peek of one of your um, virtue pairings with a sure, character? Sure, absolutely. So um, maybe I'll, I'll do Emma because she's my, she's my girl. So in the Emma chapter, we go from the vice of selfishness, which is what Emma really struggles with, mm -hmm. you know, a daughter of pride. It's connected to yes. pride yes. and moving her through, um, 
through these experiences she has in the book, particularly finally getting called out by Mr. Knightley and having to really experience this self-awareness for the first time. C.S. Lewis talks about, um, he wrote a great, I don't know if you've ever read his little essay on Jane Austen, but it's lovely. And he talks about, it's, it's great. And he talks about how many of Austen's heroines have this particular moment of undeception Mm. where suddenly they're undeceived, they're awakened to reality. And for Emma, it's when Mr. Knightley calls her out and she realizes, oh no, he's right. He's right about this time. And he's also right about a bunch of other times he probably doesn't even know about, but Mm. I know about them. Mm -hmm. And so that humility, you know, you said she's a learner. Emma's a learner and she is, she has the humility at that moment, not always, but at that moment, she has the humility to hear him and, and then develop compassion. Mm. And she has the compassion to be able to imagine other people's experiences and imagine other people's feelings and what they want and what has hurt them, which is not something that she had developed before that. She did not have this moral imagination of empathy. And so as Mr. Knightley is telling, you know, rebuking her for the way she's treated Miss Bates, she starts to imagine how Miss Bates feels, Miss Bates' life, Mm -hmm. and how painful that must have been. And so she starts to develop this compassion, you know, suffering with. Yes. And imagines... um, someone else's pain and through that wants to then make it right and remedy the the pain that she caused. And then she wants to do that in other relationships. It's kind of a snowball effect where she realizes she was wrong there. And then she wants to fix things with Jane Fairfax. You know, she wants to fix all of these relationships because she's seeing clearly now she's like put on, put on glasses that she can now see the world and see herself and then do do what's right from there. And so that's just one example of, you know, moving from selfishness through humility to compassion. Humility is kind of always the key um, to cultivating any of these virtues. Yes. And so for Emma, that's that's her little journey. Yes. Fun, fun fact about me um, is that my uh, doctoral dissertation was on humility in medieval English literature as the, uh, yeah, the gateway to all learning. Actually, Mm -hmm. if you, if you don't have the ability to admit that you don't know something, then you will never be able to learn. And that act of admitting a lack or admitting, um, a need, and this could be positive, negative, um, whatever, but the, how that is the foundation of humility and the foundation of all learning and how much medieval people thought about that. And so I, I'm just geeking out um, with <laughs> excitement hearing you talk about the role of humility for Emma and the role of humility as this um, eye-opening transformational virtue that leads into um, really, really key relational virtues like compassion, mercy, Um, empathy, seeing others for who they are and for Mm -hmm. what they're suffering and not just as uh, annoyances at a picnic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And it's, it's fun to see, you know, Austin, I think we have this misconception that Austin has a kind of formulaic style to her novels. This happens and someone needs to get married and something happens. And at the end, everyone gets married. You know, we have this, this sense. Um, But her heroine's journeys are all very different. And then two of them don't really have internal work to do. They have circumstances working on them. And so that's interesting because to, to go on the journey it's, it's someone else has to go on the journey to be ready for yes. two of the heroines. And that's kind of fun. That's fun too, because Austin's male characters are just as rich and developed as her female characters. And I think that most authors have trouble writing both sexes so, yes. um, so layered as Austin does. Can I guess who you're talking about? Um, yes, please do. 
<laughs> Are you talking about Edmund Bertram and Captain Wentworth for the other two? I am. <laughs> I am. Absolutely. And that was fun too. I feel like the Austin men don't get written about as much as the Austin women. Oh, so true. it was fun to kind of dive into those guys and follow their journeys. Oh, I love that. Yes. And I think, I actually think that, um, I've become more and more convinced the more I read Jane Austen and I'm just such a, a fangirl and, and don't get me wrong. I love film adaptations and, and all that as well. However, I've become convinced that um, the like romantic film genre has really done a disservice to her overall, where it has popularized her out you know, everybody knows Jane Austen. Everybody can tell you about uh, Mr. Darcy or whatever. But um, I think that, especially if you've never read a, an Austen novel before, or maybe read read her when you were very young or something like that, um, you can overlook the real complexity and depth of insight that she has into human character that is central in every single one of her novels that you can miss if you just know the romance side of her. 100%. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that also, I think that a lot of people don't realize how funny she is. She's so funny. Or maybe miss her humor you know, yes. because it's, it's a different style than we're used to now. It's a different way of, you know, the language is a little bit different. Yes. And I remember when, my husband started reading Jane Austen and he realized, oh my gosh, she's so funny. Like yes. I didn't know, I didn't know at first that she was making a joke. You know, I thought maybe this is a weird Regency yes. thing. Yes. Not, oh, Mrs. Bennett is supposed to like be hysterical and weird. Like yes. she's supposed to be weird. Jane's sharing the joke with you. Yes. Um, and then he would he would listen to the audiobook of Mansfield Park. He's he was he's a an ultra runner. He goes on he does these ultra marathons. And when he's training, he'll listen to audiobooks and podcasts. And he was listening to Mansfield Park and he kept having to stop on the trail and like catch his breath because he was laughing so hard at Mr. Rushworth, who I think oh, is no. so like so funny. He's so funny. And I feel like nobody talks about how funny Mr. Rushworth is. And yes. he's hilarious. He's so funny. And also his mom is really funny too. Like <laughs> them, them together is both sad and hilarious because it's so you're like, sad. oh, it's so sad. you are so dumb. But also we've all kind of met Rushworth-esque people. Yes, we're just like an endearing, an endearing little doofus of a man. Yes. And he's just so funny. I love that he doesn't stop talking about his um, satin cape when they're doing the play. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Rushworth moments is when he's just like, oh, it's so, oh, it's so dressy. Oh, it's, it's just so dressy for me. But really, he's just loving it. <laughs> I know. He's like, I, I do not know how I shall like it. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. No, it's great. And it, she's, she has characters that are very like in your face funny and then other characters where it might take a couple of readings and you realize, oh man, this character is hysterical. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another piece of her novels that doesn't get talked about quite enough is her humor. And then I'm completely on board with you that there's great romance in Jane Austen, but I think what draws us to the stories is a lot more than... Yes than the romance. That's not why they're enduring stories. Right. And like I said, don't get me wrong. I love Mr. Darcy as much as anybody. I think he's amazing. But the real joy of rereading Austen and encountering her in the text is that those themes of transformation, those themes of looking at human foibles, human absurdities, and um, just seeing that played out, um, and, and transformed and, and people learning from one another. And that's uh, just beautiful what she does. Mm -hmm. And so I, one of my favorite things, actually, I love that your husband was listening to uh, Mansfield Park um, because one of my favorite things is giving uh, Jane Austen copies to men that I know and being like, you should read this. You would really like it. Because I think so many men are like that, you know, 
conditioned by the romance novel vibe and go, oh, that's, you know, written for women or whatever. And it's like, no, she's one of the greatest writers in English, gender of whatever kind, and you need to read her. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love it when people begin to get their eyes open to that. I love that too. And I realized, um, I listened to this great keynote at one of the JASNA conferences and it was by Dr. Cornell West. You introduced me to that, by the way. Okay. You posted about it on Instagram and I didn't listen to it. I read the text of it. It is incredible. It's incredible. If you ever just want to treat yourself, listen to the audio because it is so delightful. He is so passionate about Jane Austen and just appreciates her genius. And I was listening to it and I realized I was like crying and I was like, why is this affecting me so much emotionally? And I think part of it was hearing a male academic talk about her genius and how incredible these novels are and how they relate to every human soul. And that when he's reading Persuasion, he just connects with Anne Elliot and he knows just how she feels. And Jane Austen is touching on all the big questions of life. And she's up there with Dante and Shakespeare and Chekhov. And I realized it was so emotional to me because Jane Austen is so often dismissed. Yes. As, as you said, kind of the, the romance writer for women. She, this is books for women. And it's of course a gendered thing where it's like a woman writer doesn't talk about great things. She talks about small things and so therefore can't do this kind of big, like she can't do a Dante. She can't do a Shakespeare thing. She can't do check whatever. Mm -hmm. But in fact, her methodology is different, but it's those same giant questions. Yes. And so just hearing her get the appreciation she deserved, I felt like was emotionally moving to me because I felt in some way like connected to her, like affirmed as a woman (laughs) and as a writer um, because she is sharing these experiences of the journey of the human soul Mm -hmm. through the eyes of a woman and through these more domestic scenes and to, to have someone see it and say, yes, this is genius. Everybody yes. should read it. It just, it meant so much to me. So on my bucket list is I want to get to have a meal with Dr. Cornell West and just talk to him about Jane Austen. Because if I'm having a bad day, I will just listen to that talk because <laughs> he is so pumped up and it just makes me so happy. Oh my gosh. I love that. So wonderful. And yes, and please, I will reiterate for any of you listening or watching, go and read it or listen to it because it is 100% worth your time. Um, And it's a very powerful articulation of Jane Austen and what it means to be human in her works and and just in general. So it's so good. And really, it's going to pump you up to read any kind of great literature. (laughs) True. Because it's really really him celebrating the power of stories for making us the people that we should be. And so, yes, everybody, everybody listen to it. Yes, absolutely. Um. Okay, here's a question for you. I know I've just been sort of ragging on film adaptations of Austin, but I still always like to know, I'm very nosy, what is your favorite adaptation of Austin? What do you think has been the most well done? Oh, gosh. Okay. I don't think I can narrow it down past two. So I'm going to give you my top two. Great. So one is the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries. I mean, I mean, if you don't answer that, there's something wrong, right? That has to be up there. It's so good. It's so great. And because it's long, they can really put all it in. It's so faithful. Um, It it, it, um, does real justice to a lot of her tone, which is amazing. mm -hmm. It's so hard to do. Yes. So... That one is great. And then the other one that I love, it's not quite as faithful because it's just a feature length film. You know, it's yes. what, an hour and a half or something. Um, and it's hard to get the whole story in that quickly. But the sense and sensibility that Imaton wrote the screenplay yes. and Angley directed it, even okay. if it's not 
perfectly faithful in some ways, I think it really gets the tone and the feel of the book and the characters, the main characters really, really well. And it's just so beautiful. And how can you read it and not just fall in love with Sense and Sensibility? It's so great. And uh, let's talk about that casting. Like Emma Thompson as Eleanor is perfect. And, and, um, what's her Kate Winslet as Marianne so good too and just the two of them together Mm -hmm. it's really believable it's really wonderful their sister bond in that really great it's really really great and then Alan Rickman as Colonel Brandon he's a great Colonel perfect yes the most perfect Colonel Brandon and yes everybody in it is great even Hugh Grant is Edward, which I think he plays like the most perfect Edward because so he's so like awkward. So bumbling and like so cute yeah. and endearing, but just also like disastrous. Yes. Yes. And you just want to be like, just like say what you need to say, yeah. which is <laughs> how you feel about him in the book, where you're like, yes. you were driving everyone nuts. Like yes. just tell her what you need to tell her. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, it's so good. And it's also like the music and the filming. It's just gorgeous. So those oh are my gosh. top two. Really excellent top two. I wholeheartedly approve. Um, I also, even though this is a way unorthodox, I um, really do enjoy Clueless, the adaptation of Emma. <laughs> totally different genre, totally different ballgame. But um I used to teach Emma sometimes in the classroom and I would show Clueless with it and it was always a really good time. So yeah, that's really fun. (laughs) Oh gosh. Now I, now maybe I have three because I really love the Romola Garai series. That is a very good one. That one's so good because Johnny Lee Miller, I mean, she's great, but Johnny Lee Miller is the perfect Mm -hmm. Mr. Knightley. He's so good. I think the best of all the, like, cause Emma has been the one that has been adapted the most, it seems other than maybe Pride and Prejudice, but I don't know. Emma seems to have spawned more mm-hmm. film versions um, because it it's such a fun film thing to show. I think Emma's mm-hmm. such a fun character, but I do think he is the best Mr. Knightley out of the many Mr. Knightleys so that have been done. And I think that it's, even though he, you know, he's supposed to be much older than her in the book. And he is, you know, the actor is much older than she is in the movie. But it, I love how that movie kind of draws out their banter. Yes. And the fun of their friendship, that it makes it so believable. Yes, um, absolutely. That, you know, it's not just like, oh, yes, a much older neighbor, yes. brother-in-law hmm, person. Ooh. Like, you know, it just seems so yeah. weird. But the, in the movie, it it feels so comfortable and yeah. their friendship is so fun. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Okay, but on the flip side, worst adaptation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. I think that just like, least fun to watch because it's terrible is the Northanger Abbey that Andrew Davies wrote the screenplay for. I don't know if you saw it. It has like Felicity Jones, I think is her name. I saw it. I I don't remember it that well though. Um, It's like so weird. And then they add like these in Andrew Davies style, they add like these weird, like sexualized oh. scenes. Oh yeah. I remember of, like those. in her imagination. Yes. And you're just like, this is so uncomfortable. Like yes. why is this happening? And it's just weird. So that one's just weird, but also why did they try to make it into a movie? Cause it's a weird book. Like that's <laughs> never, you're never going to make a good Northanger Abbey. Like, no, thank you. Um, and then Oh, nobody gets Mansfield Park right. Everybody, oh my gosh, everybody fails about Mansfield how Park. Off the adapt, the like '90s adaptation was of Mansfield Park. Oh I saw yeah. It oh, that college, one's so weird. And I was like, I'm never watching this again. This is awful. No, it's so dark, and they get Fanny completely oh, wrong. It's like it they didn't believe that anyone. Yes, they they just they didn't understand Fanny and thought like, well, we just have to completely change Fanny or else no one will like her. And then they tried to do that other Mansfield Park in the early 2000s. It was also, I thought it was kind of a flop where you're just, yeah, where instead of like, 
I think they're always kind of trying to breathe some life into Fanny yeah. because they even find, if you love yeah. her, like you've got to admit she's, she's can be a little dull. Right. So they're trying to breathe some life into Fanny Price. So in the one adaptation, they make her a completely different character. And in the early 2000s one, they just kind of make her awkward. Like they yes. make her run around a lot. She awkwardly, like and I'm like, why are you making her run? Scenes, like, <laughs> jumping around and you're like, what? Who is this? Um, just, yeah. Stop. Stop guys. I need to talk about my, uh, I think this adaptation isn't bad overall, but one of my least favorite changes that an adaptation has ever made is the um, BBC uh, 2000s Persuasion, where Mm. she runs after Wentworth down the street. The worst the worst, and then the world's most awkward kiss. Oh my gosh! In it's any awful. film, it's awful. It's, it's like not awful. romantic. It's stressful. No, it is. It's so weird. Oh, I hate that <laughs> scene, and I hate it because Persuasion is my my favorite. Um, and I'm like Anne Elliot would never. She would never. This is so no, bad. No, she's not running around Bath. I actually, I get to go to Bath next year and I'm so oh. excited because I've never been to England. And oh my, gosh, my so plan dumb. is just to, to run around Bath. Like <laughs> I just want to, I want to reenact. Like you're just running and then someone's like, oh, they went the other way. And then you turn around, you just run and run and run. And then you run again, like just so much running. Oh my gosh. I just hate that scene. Like, I hate it. I'm like, oh, you it's terrible. Cause the whole ruined. film is actually pretty good. Yes. The film no, is that's pretty like good. so disappointing. <laughs> what were you thinking? Filmmakers? I don't get it. I don't know. So bad. Okay. And also I like, I get it. There's those scenes where she's kind of looking at the camera and crying and I get, I get it, I guess, but I think that's a little bit of a weird choice too like maybe just because it makes me so sad I know well I think it's like uh, it feels like a sort of lazy attempt to get you to feel sad for Anne because it is sad Mm -hmm. she is sad and she has this deep abiding sadness in her and in this book that is totally real and authentic but I feel like that is sort of like a cheap ploy to get you Mm -hmm. there rather than it's, you know, it's the old, like, the old writing piece of advice, like, the show don't tell. And they're basically, like, telling you, like, shoving yeah. you, shoving it down your throat. Like, be sad right now. She's sad, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. But we have two persuasions coming out next year, Ooh. I think. I'm super so nervous who knows? about them. Me too. We'll see. Me too. I, did you see that... Um, they cast Henry Golding for Mr. Elliot, which I'm like, yeah. and it, do you know who Henry Golding is? I mean, yes. he's this super, for those of you who have, do not know, he's this super hot male model guy. And I'm like, okay, Mr. Elliot, really? Like, I, <laughs> I, I know he's supposed to be like decent looking, but this guy is like very male model. And I'm, I'm completely confused by that but we'll see maybe it'll <laughs> be really too. I'm good. so confused about the casting for that one and I, Dakota yeah. um oh my gosh what's her last jo- name Johnson Johnson, Johnson as Anne I was also very surprised by because she is extremely beautiful um and Anne is supposed to be somewhat faded so mm-hmm. we'll see yeah and and I feel like the other two adaptations did that well it's not they like did. the actresses are not haggard or repulsive, but no. they're not like <laughs> beauty queens. And I appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. And we're, we're beginning to get close to the end here, but I have one um, thing that uh, since we've gotten to have fun talking Jane Austen, have fun thinking through Austen and her value for us as readers today I do want to um, indulge myself a little bit by going back to some of my uh, medieval roots. And um, so Haley right now is leading a book club for the Catholic organization Word on Fire. And they're currently reading Julian of Norwich, who, as many of you know, is my literary obsession. Um, And so I wanted to hear from you how reading Julian of Norwich was going and what you make of Julian. Yeah, it's been so fun to read her because 
I read her for the first time in college and my impression was that she's so weird and I don't know what she's talking about. And she probably needed psychiatric care. And why did people keep just letting her write when she needed help? You know, this and I think I can't even tell you how many <laughs> undergraduates have basically said something like that, like in the classroom where they're like, oh my gosh, this is really, oh my gosh, this poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, so rereading her has been so fun because every, every little chapter, there's just so much in there and it's so fun to wrestle with, especially in a book discussion, you know, trying to figure out, um, what does she mean about God doesn't have anger that she doesn't see anger in God? You know, how do we reconcile that with, with scripture and, and what we know about God? So we know that Julian is a faithful daughter of the church. So what does she mean by this? Um, all of it is so fascinating and very beautiful. And I think actually really relevant. So relevant. Oh my gosh. Right now. Yes. Um, Do you want to share a little bit on, on how you see that relevance? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that she was living through a time of plague mm-hmm. and that, um, that she focuses so much not on the fire and brimstone, although there are fire and brimstone parts to it, which is also fun. Yes. Um, but she really focuses on the power of God's love and grace and mercy. Yes. And yet she doesn't um, diminish the gravity of sin yes. and the nature of evil. She, she doesn't diminish any of that, but she keeps bringing it back to the attributes of God mm-hmm. and his love and his mercy and this idea that um, whatever is happening right now, there is almost this sense of what Tolkien calls you catastrophe. Yes. I love like, this there's word. This, yes. There's this, whatever this disaster is, there's going to be this, um, this hope on the other end. And you, you see that in Lord of the Rings where you think, oh, nothing can be worse than this. Everything's fallen apart. And then at the last minute, everything is saved in this beautiful way. And so she just has so much trust and hope in God and his love and his grace that she can say things like, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And she doesn't mean I'm not gonna die of the plague by saying all shall be well. Yes. But she means that um, that our hope is based in something that transcends all of this. And I love how she keeps talking about, um, you know, the whole cosmos is this little hazelnut that yes. God has in his hand and, and that he says to the human soul, he's saying to her in particular, but I think she's thinking of herself as one Christian of many Christians. So he's yes. speaking this to every soul is this idea of, I am keeping you very safe. Mm. You know, that we worry about sin and evil and all of these things mm. that we are anxious about. And that the words that Jesus wants to tell her in these visions is that he is keeping her very safe. Yes. And so I think it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful spiritual cl- classic to read right now because it's a little bit weird and it's unusual yes. and it kind of makes you think about things in a new way, things yes. that you know, but thinking about them in a new way, kind of like, have you ever read The Greatest Christmas Pageant Ever yes. by Barbara <laughs> Robinson? Yes, it's so, so good. good. And so the idea in this book is that this church is putting on a Christmas pageant and this horrible family of like feral children who've never been churched are coming in and they want to be a part of things for some reason. And they're hearing the story for the first time and they have the most hilarious questions and they get really mad about things and they want to have a part in the play where they can string up Herod and, you know, kill him as part of the play because they think King Herod is so terrible. And it's just, it's so hilarious but it's very moving too, because as you're experiencing the Christmas story through the eyes of this horrible family of children, the Herdmans, it is kind of hitting you in a fresh way too. And you realize, oh, this is shocking. This is 
moving. This should make us, you know, very passionate or angry, you know, all of these things. Yes. And so I think that that's one reason I love Julian is she's coming at it from such a different perspective that it makes us see the things that perhaps we knew, but with, with fresh eyes. Absolutely. And this is one of my biggest plugs for reading old literature um, is that the weirdness can bring you to things that you have um, walked over a thousand times, um, acknowledging, but not thinking about, and the weirdness forces you to really look at it. Um, it's like being on a hike that you've done a bunch of times before and you are hiking up the mountain and you've seen everything. It's just part of your routine and you're exercising, you're doing whatever. It's great. You love it. Then you're on the same mountain and you take a side path and you're having to watch where you're stepping. You're having to look around at the, the plants and the views. You're on the same mountain, but it's completely different. Um, and, and your perspective is completely different. And that's what I think the, mm -hmm. the weirdness of somebody like Julian, the weirdness of the Herdman children, um, the weirdness <laughs> of even the weirdness of Jane Austen, um, for that matter, the different culture that she's in, the things that are important to her that were like, huh, I, I wouldn't say that's important to me. Um, <laughs> they but, just went on a carriage ride. Yeah, it was his aunt's heck? house. Like, <laughs> she said a, a mean deal. thing at a picnic. So what? <laughs> um, but these things help us to remember uh, things that we take for granted or on the other hand, to reevaluate things we believe that are culturally contingent and not actually eternally true. Um, mm. And that's what I really love about old literature. Yes, it makes me think about um, something Flannery O'Connor says about writing for the modern culture. You know, people asking her why her books are so weird because they are so weird. <laughs> and she said something to, I'm going to mess it up, paraphrasing, but something like to the blind, for the blind, you draw big startling figures mm -hmm. and for the hard of hearing, you shout. Yes. And so, you know, I think the role of, every good writer is to wake us up a little yes. bit. Oh, and I think that's something that they all do. A really great writer can do that. Yes, I totally agree. I think, and I think um, actually, if you have been reading older things or have wanted to read old things, but have been intimidated, um, it's okay to be intimidated. And it actually, um, if you're stumbling over something or having to go slow, that's a really good thing, I think, um, because you are being forced to pay attention. Um, and that's, that's something that uh, sometimes we take for granted. And so I, I think mm -hmm. I, I love that um, from Flannery O'Connor about shocking people into paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we need to read books with other people. Yes. Oh, I think, gosh, and if yes. we're, especially if in we're this time, like, let's be real pandemic <laughs> times, we need more than ever to be reading in community. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's been fun, even though you know, our word on fire book club is all online and then we, we do a zoom. So we do discussion threads and then we do a zoom at the end to be able to see each other's faces, but it's just fun to watch anytime someone says, or anytime someone makes himself vulnerable enough to say, I don't know what's going on with this. Yes. It's great because it most of the other people go, oh, me too. Here's one thought I had, but yes. I don't know. What does anybody think about this? If you're struggling with it, it's probably because that part's really tricky. And yes. there's a lot there. Like you need people to help you sort through it. Yes. So Trust yourself and don't, um, don't just smooth over it with like, I'm so embarrassed. I, probably everybody else knows what's going on. Right. I mean, <laughs> no, I bet they don't. <laughs> nope. Nope. Especially not when reading Julian and you're like, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, this medieval <laughs> what anchorite. Is what is she talking about? Oh my gosh. She said one thing and then she said another, and yet she's acting like they don't contradict each other. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, there's a method to her madness, but you can only get to it through conversation often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Haley, for coming on Old Books with Grace. And, and everybody, uh, if you want to learn more about Haley and her work, definitely um, check out her blog at Carrots from Michaelmas, and you can... Um, look at some of her recent publications on there. And I also will have a link to that Madeline Lingle essay on Old Books with Grace if you want to check it out. Um, 
I've had such a good time chatting with you about <laughs> all these old books. It makes me really happy. So thank you. Absolutely. This has been so fun, Grace. Thanks. All right. Um, so don't forget to follow on Instagram, Old Books with Grace, or to follow um, the blog, oldbookswithgrace.com, or the podcast also called Old Books with Grace. So thank you everybody for listening and until next time. The prayer you heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas Prayer Book by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser published by the Sophia Institute Press.